Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Destiny Nock, Assistant Professor at Carnegie Mellon University, Chief Sustainability Officer for DevStream, and Chief Executive Officer of People's Energy Analytics. Destiny has worked for years to uncover, quantify, and seek solutions to the problems of energy insecurity and energy poverty. In today's conversation, she'll share insights based on a recent paper that she co-authored called Unveiling Hidden Energy Poverty Using the Energy Equity Gap. The analysis shows how on hot days, black and low-income households wait to turn on their air conditioning units, putting them at greater risk of heat-related illnesses. We'll talk about why that matters, what the causes might be, and get a broad understanding of the issues of energy insecurity and energy poverty in the U.S. Stay with us. All right, Destiny Nock from Carnegie Mellon University, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So Destiny, we're going to talk today about uh, the fascinating work that you do and have done on energy poverty and energy burdens, and we're going to define those terms and, and what they mean and why they're important. But first, we always ask our guests about how they got interested in working on energy or environmental issues, whether it was at a young age or later in life. So what steered you into this line of work? So I think one thing that really interested me about energy was when I went to my first study abroad in Malawi, Africa. And that was when I experienced my first rolling blackout. So it was just over the top, like, what? You know, (laughs) when it happened. And I went to the front desk and I asked the hotel, hey, like, when are we going to get our power back? And they said, oh, well, the power outage was supposed to come Wednesday, but here it's Friday. So the government probably will bring it back soon, right? And soon was the best I got. And I was thinking to myself, in 2012, why are we still having countries with rolling blackouts and they don't even know when it will come back on? Um, And it really opened my eyes to how hard it is to go to school, run a business when you don't have a reliable supply of electricity. So that undergrad experience was the first time where I would pinpoint of saying, I want to design a better power grid, right? Now, my foray into energy poverty, I think, happened when I was more in grad school. Like, I knew I wanted to plan better power systems, and I wanted to make them more sustainable, make them greener. But having, like, a specific energy poverty lens, um, when I was in grad school, I was struggling to pay my electricity bill. We had oil heating in the winter. And that's very expensive for anyone out there that does not have oil heating. (laughs) Um, And we were basically making a choice between electricity bill, heating bill, food bill, and then general car maintenance, right? So I think my car had broken down at one point and it cost me like $1,000 to fix it. So one thing about being poor is that it's very expensive. (laughs) Um, And so then we decided to pay our heating bill because it's the middle of winter, and we ended up getting disconnected from our electricity provider. And when you get disconnected from your electricity provider, it doesn't even matter if you had paid the heating bill because your thermostat doesn't work, right? My house basically became a tent. Um, And that's when I realized how devastating energy and lack of uh, energy can be. And I 
that's when I started to really focus and hone in and, and want to make my research about energy poverty from a affordability, but also from like a hidden form of poverty lens, right? And it wasn't just about planning the grid to make sure people had supply access, but also wanting to make sure that they could afford it. Um, and if they couldn't afford it, maybe uncovering some other ways that it might show up. So one is the most common measure of energy uh, insecurity is energy burden, which is the percent of income that you spend on meeting your energy bills. But my issue was I didn't spend that much on my energy bills, right? <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, that was the problem. And so that's why we have, you know, worked really hard to create data analytics tools that can identify who's not consuming enough, right? Who's not spending enough? And then ask the question of why aren't they spending enough? Yeah, that's fascinating. And and I didn't know about that personal experience of yours, which sounds pretty terrible, um, but fascinating how it you know, steered you into this, this career. So as I've already mentioned, and as you've alluded to, we're going to talk today about your work on energy poverty. Uh, you've already defined for us the term energy burden. Can you define a couple more terms, which are um, energy poor and energy insecure? What's the difference between those two terms? So I would say that energy poor normally represents a lack of access to modern energy services, whereas energy insecure might mean that you have access to those services, but you are insecure in your ability to maintain access. So for a quick example, um, energy poverty, I feel like is a set of concentric circles where in the most core circle, there is the cost and expenditure concerns, which are typically what people think of when they hear energy insecurity and one type of energy insecurity is energy burden, right? So if that assumes that you have supply and you have a connection in your home, right, you can use it regularly, but maybe because of the cost, you are insecure in being able to use it and being able to use as much as you need. Then in a slightly larger circle, right, now you have the reliability concerns. Now, depending on the type of reliability concerns, this may lend itself more into poverty or insecurity. And so reliability concerns could be like the Texas winter storm disaster, right? If you are receiving outages because you are just in a shaky part of the grid or because of weather, right, for a time that is um, experiencing a lack of access to services, right? That'd be reliability-based energy poverty. But on the other hand, if you are getting disconnected because you can't afford it, right? Now that lends itself more towards insecurity because now the thing is you actually do have it. It technically is reliable from a technical standpoint, but from a cost standpoint, it's you're, you're not going to be connected all the time. So that's more insecurity. So I think that's why it can get confusing because the same outcome is caused by um, different inputs. And then in the largest circle of energy poverty, I would say those are supply concerns. And that is, you know, if you don't have a supply of electricity, then you are energy poor. There's no doubt about it, right? And that's typically what people think of first when they hear the word energy poor or energy poverty. We tend to think of like developing countries that don't have a grid system. And it's because, right, if you don't have the supply, then you don't have reliability concerns and you don't have affordability concerns. Yeah. 
Great. That makes sense. So now that you've defined these terms for us, energy poverty and energy insecurity, it'd be great to put them in context, and then we'll talk about some of your research. Um, can you help us understand about how many U.S. households fit these definitions of being either energy poor or energy insecure? So the U.S. Energy Information Administration does a residential consumption survey, and what they reported in their most recent 2020 survey is that 27% of U.S. households had difficulty meeting their energy needs. Um, and this is, you know, a self-reporting. So, for example, and this is also, I should say, mostly related to energy insecurity. So in 2020, they say that um, roughly 20% of households uh, forewent their basic necessities. So this is like food, medicine, potentially fixing their car that's broken, right? 20% forewent those in order to pay their energy bill, right? So it's a lot of households. And then if we look deeper into that, then in 2020, about 10% received a disconnection notice, meaning that they are at risk of being disconnected from their electricity provider and getting their house turned into a tent. Um, and then another 10% actually kept their house at an unhealthy or unsafe temperature in order to afford their energy bill. And this is really concerning because that's a lot of households, right? And those are just the ones that are self-reporting. Um, and then, of course, the survey technique is to scale it up to the larger population. Um, and actually, we believe that there are more homes that are not self-reporting these indicators. Um, because one thing that we know about people who experience poverty is that nobody actually wants to admit it. That's really interesting. I wonder also about the fact that the survey was conducted in 2020, which was such a extraordinary year for everyone because of the lockdowns and you know people losing jobs left and right, plus government assistance coming in. I imagine 2020 was just a, a weird year that could skew the data in, in either direction, I could imagine. I mean, I could tell a story that it could go either way. Does that seem right to you? Yes, it does. Because in 2020, during the COVID lockdowns, there was also moratoriums placed on disconnections. And so there are people that know that their electricity service provider couldn't disconnect them at that moment in time. And so you may actually have homes experiencing different behavior. But then, of course, in 2020, there's also a lot more job loss, right? And so that could increase the feelings of insecurity during um, times before the moratoriums were put in place. Um, and actually, so in 2015, when the U.S. Energy Information Administration did the survey, it actually was that 31% of households reported any type of insecurity. Um, and that lowered a bit in 2020. And so, you know, it might be that people were, you know, looking at these moratoriums, like, oh, I can't be disconnected. So maybe I'm not feeling it as much right now. So that can also be an indicator of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so another research question to investigate, perhaps in the future for, for one of us or one of our colleagues. Um, but let's talk now about some research that you have already done with colleagues uh, and 
is this really fascinating paper called Unveiling Hidden Energy Poverty Using the Energy Equity Gap. It's one of many papers you've published in recent years, uh, but we're going to dig into it today. So what do you and your co-authors seek to do in this paper, and what are the data you use to try to answer your questions? So in this paper, um, which, yeah, thanks for highlighting that, because that's really nice. <laughs> one of the things is an academic is you know, usually only 50 people read my papers. And the fact that over 5,000 people have read our Unveiling Hidden Energy Poverty paper is still mind boggling to me. So with that paper, our goal was to ask the question of who is not using energy and how much are they not using it? Right. Um, because when we use the energy burden, that percent of income that you spend on meeting your energy bills, Rarely, rarely do we ask the question of, well, how much energy were you even using in the first place, right? So in our paper, we use smart meter data from a utility company in Arizona, the Salt River Project. And through a collaboration with them, we determined when do different households turn on their air conditioning units, right? And so um, we use some data analytics tools, we use regression tools, and we found that um, low-income groups wait four to seven degrees longer than high-income groups to turn on their air conditioning units. Now, one thing I will note is that we did that in terms of the outdoor temperature. So, you know, our overall question was, in terms of outdoor temperature, when do different households start to feel uncomfortable, right? And when are they willing to turn on their air conditioning units? So if everyone in one region had the same housing infrastructure, right, same level of insulation, then we would expect that people in the same region would start to feel uncomfortable at the same outdoor temperature on average, right? So we take the medians. But we notice that low-income groups wait seven degrees longer in some cases, which is a big gap. Um, and that doesn't even capture the full range. In some households, they were waiting until it was over 80 degrees outside on average. And I just want to remind people who are listening that 80 degrees in the desert on a daily average is going to be much hotter than 80 degrees because in the desert, the nighttime gets really cold, the high of the day gets really hot. So even though the average daily temperature is 80 degrees at some points and times of the day, the height could reach over 100 degrees. And so that's something to really keep in mind. And so when we were looking at some of the data from the healthcare side, we were seeing in Arizona that in a 10-year time period, 224 people died from heat-related death um, in one county in Arizona, despite all of those households having an air conditioning unit. Right. So when we think about technology deployment, then the big question is, well, we're deployed all this technology, but are people going to be able to use it to adapt to climate change? Right. Are they going to be able to use it to adapt to these increasing heat waves that we're seeing? And then when I was talking to some researchers in Arizona, they were saying, well, 
With the deaths, you have to multiply it times 12, at least, for emergency room visits due to heat illness. And that's, you know, so we have now one county now multiplied by 12 to see emergency room visits. And then you have all the counties in Arizona, plus all the states across the south, right? And now heat waves are coming into the north. And so with this paper, we were really trying to highlight that there are groups of people that feel like they cannot consume enough energy, like they can't afford it. And to put a number on the risk that they may be putting themselves at. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating and, and a little scary to hear, hear those numbers. One of the things that I'm wondering about is the 242 people you mentioned in, in the certain county. Do we know how many of those people were experiencing housing insecurity during that time? Like, do we know those people actually had access to the air conditioning technology or could they have been people who you know didn't have homes at that time? Yeah, so that paper that I referenced, um, that was by Iverson at all 2020. Um, and so that 224 people, those were all the households that had air conditioning units um, in their home. Now, there were more households in their study that they looked at. Um, and some of those, I believe, did not. So I would definitely recommend connecting people to that study because uh, Iverson is doing great work. But for the 224 households that had air conditioning units, um, I believe a little over 50% of them um, were disconnected from their provider. And about 25%-ish uh, were, they turned off their working air conditioning unit, right, in order to save money. And so that's why um, that is a big challenge, right? And that's a big form of hidden energy poverty, right? Because people just are turning off their systems because they feel like they can't afford them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for that clarification. I, I, I somehow missed that in your earlier description. So um, another really important piece of analysis that you and your co-authors carry out is looking at how these results vary in terms of uh, income, race, age, and other important demographic characteristics. And uh, just one other technical note for listeners, Destiny mentioned the Salt River Project. That is the service territory for the Salt River Project. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it covers a lot of Phoenix and then the sort of eastern suburbs of Phoenix. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So Destiny, can you tell us about how these results varied in terms of those demographic characteristics? Yeah, so in terms of the demographic characteristics, we did see that in general, the black population was waiting much longer than um, non-minorities in order to start using their air conditioning units. Um, and so one question that comes to mind is, well, is this a preference across the general population or is it an inequity? Right. So then what we did was we looked within the black population and looked across income groups, right? So it's just the black households. And now we're looking at uh, income ranges across those black households. And we actually saw that the gap was uh, increasing and it can be pretty wide between the highest and the lowest income groups within the black population. And so that signifies an inequity, right? Um, and, and that is something that I believe is really important for, you know, these types of discussions when we're thinking about who's vulnerable, who needs to receive assistance. Because one of the things that, you know, at least I've noticed in the U.S. is that we don't typically like to bring race into the discussion. But we do know that there are historic policies that have led to 
uh, racial segregation, right? There have been you know, racial profiling. There's been, you know, in uh, inequitable housing policies that have led to discrimination and, and for black populations to be in, you know, worse off housing. And so we cannot forget those things when we're trying to look at solving energy poverty. And so that's one reason why we, you know, looked at um, the black population, the Asian population, the white population, the Hispanic population. And one thing I will advocate for is that within the Native American population or the indigenous population, we actually didn't have enough data to do a meaningful analysis, right? And we know that there are concerns on Native American reservations about the, you know, um, access to energy services, right? The consistency of that access and, and what have you. Um, so then in the age category of our analysis, um, we were looking at, well, you know, elderly populations may have different concerns than, you know, the younger population. And so we also did an analysis there and we were seeing that within that age category, many people were also having really high inflection temperatures. And that was something that was a bit concerning because, you know, if, if elderly populations are putting themselves at higher risk of heat-related illness and death, then that is just something we don't want to happen, right? And so now the question is, okay, how do we make sure that we are addressing this? How do we determine if this is an inequity or an insecurity? Um, because it is a big challenge, right? Um, and within the uh, 75 year old plus category, right, these people are waiting until the average temperature in Arizona is above uh, sometimes 70 degrees, but or maybe 69 degrees Fahrenheit to turn on their air conditioning units. And that is the highest um, that anyone waits within the age categories. But when we look at the equity gap between the elderly population, they're all relatively similarly worse off, right? So they're all kind of consuming at the same amount. But then if we look within the youngest population, so 18 to 24-year-olds, right? These are the college students, sometimes they're grad students, young professionals. We see that a lot of them are turning on their air conditioning units when it is, you know, at the lowest, so 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 62 degrees Fahrenheit, on average temperature, I should say. So average outdoor temperature, don't forget that the high of the day is going to be much higher than 65 degrees. But when we look with across income groups and within, so now holding 18, 24-year-olds constant and looking just within that age group and across the gap between high and low income groups, we see that sometimes the gap ranges as high as 18 degrees, right? So that means that those really well-off 18 to 24-year-olds that are fresh out of college, you know, having the good jobs, they are, you know, really comfortable in their homes. And the other ones that are working, those, you know, bookstore jobs, the waitresses, the waiters, like people that are working grocery stores potentially, they are potentially at risk of not cooling and not consuming enough. Um, and maybe that's because, you know, there is a portion of our population where if you do not have a college degree, right, then you are not going to be able to get or to have a decent paying and a decent living wage, right? And so that is something that's also 
concerning um, when we think about the social services that people will have access to. Yeah. Yeah, really fascinating findings there. And just a couple of the points you made reminded me of a couple of things that I would love to point our listeners to. The first is um, we've done a couple episodes on sort of the history of redlining and housing discrimination and how that's contributed to these issues of energy insecurity. We did an episode maybe 18 months ago with Eva Liubich from uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, and we've also done episodes with Tony Reams where we, we've talked about this. Uh, the other point you made about the um, indigenous people's access uh, to electricity, you know, the service territory for the Salt River Project is fairly close to the Navajo and Hopi reservations. And those are reservations where, you know, there's a substantial number of people who aren't even connected to the electricity grid uh, in those places. And just a really big issue there. Um, so thanks again for all those points. Really fascinating. Did you want to follow up? Yeah. So one thing I would like to follow up is that... Um... I meant to address your previous question that you had asked about what data do we use, right? So we use the smart meter data at the household level. So one thing that is a limitation is we don't actually have appliance level data, right? So we don't know how much energy is coming from your air conditioner or your refrigerator or what have you, but we do know how much electricity is coming from the household with the smart meters. But I think that you highlighted a really great point of for people who are not connected, they are not even going to be within our analysis, right? Because this is a really big data-driven analysis on household-level energy use. And that ties back to our earlier conversation about definitions about energy poor. And if you don't have supply, you do not have affordability and reliability concerns. And that is something that, you know, we can't forget about when we're trying to solve energy poverty uh, issues, especially in the U.S., that so oftentimes we focus the conversation on people who are already connected and there are people who are not connected, right? Whether that be through a disconnection or, you know, they are living in an area where they are not connected to a utility provider. Yeah. Yeah. Really good reminder. So um, Destiny, I'd love to ask you just one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, uh, which is kind of about the flip side of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about cooling when people turn on their air conditioning or other cooling devices. Uh, I'm curious if you found anything similar on the heating side of the equation. Obviously, we're talking about the Phoenix area, so maybe maybe people don't need to use heating very much. But I'm just curious, when you look at that other end of the temperature spectrum, whether you see a similar uh, pattern or if uh, you see something different. So one of the things that we have um, been doing is actually expanding this analysis. That's one reason for that uh, the spin out the people's energy analytics spin out because we have been getting a lot of interest. Um, and what we've been doing is working with the ComEd data in Illinois to identify how this energy limiting behavior, which um, I will define the definition in a second. So looking at how the energy limiting behavior varies in the summer and the winter. Um, so for the definition for all the people <laughs> out there uh, of energy limiting behavior is if you have two households and they have um, different income ranges and one household starts to use their air conditioning unit when it is on average 75 degrees outside and the other household starts to use their air conditioning unit when it is 70 degrees outside. Now, assuming that the second household doesn't have a budget constraint in the first household that has to wait a lot longer into the summer to use their air conditioning unit does have a budget constraint, then we would say that the 
one without the budget constraints sets the ideal comfort level. Um, and so then this, the household that waits until it's 75 degrees outside is exhibiting five degrees of energy limiting behavior. They limit their energy consumption in order to save money and to meet some other basic needs. So when in Arizona, we looked at the, the gap in the cooling sector, of course, um, but in Illinois, we've um, slightly changed our equation to be able to look at both the heating and the cooling sector. For the first year of our analysis, when we were looking across different income groups, we found in uh, Illinois, the energy equity gap for the cooling side was about five degrees Fahrenheit um, for the first year that we analyzed. But now when we looked at the heating sector, the gap actually is much wider at eight degrees Fahrenheit. And this is something that can be really concerning to us because um, there is one, since the gap is smaller in the, um, the summer, that might mean that people are trying to uh, use their air conditionings at the same time. But it's also Chicago and Illinois, right? So it's not going to get as hot as Arizona. But in the winter, because the gap is much wider, we can say that there is potentially the extra cost associated with it right? Um, because we actually noticed that it reverses. So in the summer, low-income groups wait longer to turn on their air conditioning units, meaning that they could potentially be putting themselves at a higher risk of heat illness or heat really death. But in the winter, the low-income groups actually turn it on earlier in the winter, right? And now that is something where you're like, wait a second, why would these low-income groups be spending more money? That doesn't make any sense. But then when we were digging through um, some of the literature, we found that there are recommended uh, safety settings for households for the winter, right, in order to protect your pipes from freezing, in order to make sure that your housing infrastructure is good. And then also the insulation factor is going to come in, right? So one thing that um, could be occurring is that people have a higher tolerance for heat than they do for cold. Because in the summer, during the hottest time of the day, you might go to work, go to a library, go to a coffee shop. You don't have to be in your house at the hottest time of the day. You can stay out and typically until nighttime, and then you can open up all your windows. It'll be much cooler. But in the winter, during the coldest time of the day, you are stuck in your house, freezing cold, trying to go to sleep. right? And that is something that then will lead these low-income households to spend more money right, in the winter. Uh, to satisfy their energy needs because there's nowhere else to go. So that is something that I think is really interesting from our preliminary analysis in the Chicago area. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I'll you know, definitely be on the lookout for, uh, for more data and analysis coming from you on that topic because it is a really fascinating dynamic uh, and could connect with this issue of, you know, lower quality housing stock uh, among lower income people, which is less efficient and could require them to, you know, use more heating um, when it gets cold out. But Destiny, let's um, close out our conversation today with the same question we ask all of our guests, which is asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard. Uh, it can be related to the environment or not even related to the environment. Just anything you think our audience might enjoy uh, that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack. So um, one of the things that I've recently read is called Donut Economics. Um, so that book by Kate Rollsworth, I, I find really fascinating because it really tries to attack the traditional way of thinking about economics of 
you know, tying in environmental concerns as externalities, people concerns as externalities all to the market, right? But she argues that we need to integrate those things into our economy calculations, that the idea that we can separate growth from environmental protection, right, and protection of low-income communities, she said, is outdated, right? And I stand behind that because there's evidence that, you know, if we look at our energy system, because we just focus on, you know, minimizing cost and we're not considering the people, right, then that leads us to issues today where, and like electricity is tied to all of our basic needs, right? But you can be disconnected and people will blame you for not paying your bill, right? But what are you going to do about it? The question, the, always it's what are you going to do, right? Not what the system is going to do. How are we going, like, how is the government going to make sure that everyone can afford to pay its bills? How can we make sure that when we are solving poverty issues that are tied to the way that our economy runs, we don't lose sight of the actual end goal, which is having a population that has a decent quality of life, enough money to live, right? And people in general can can live a good life and get to where they need to be. Then if the listeners have already got that one, I'll recommend another one by Ibrahim Kendi, which is How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so How to Be an Anti-Racist, it looks at trying to um, help people determine how to make what he calls anti-racist policies. And so, you know, when we are talking about race a lot of times in the U.S., if someone says, like, I felt like, you know, that thing was discriminatory, then oftentimes the conversation jumps to, well, I'm not a racist, right? So, and then it becomes very defensive. But in Kendi's book, he actually makes the argument that there's no such thing as a not a racist. Your actions are either segregating people based on the race or they're anti-racist and they're not doing that, right? So, but he kind of disconnects it from no one person is doing all racist things or all not racist things, right? It's like focus on the actions and let's focus on the policies and let's design policies that take into account the historic, you know, uh, racist policies and discriminatory things that have happened, right? Like, like you mentioned, the redlining, for example, and let's not ignore those things, but let's actually actively work towards building anti-racist policies by acknowledging that race has historically played a large role in our policies and then designing better policies. And I really like that book. Um, actually, it was my students and I had a book club to, to read it. And I really like it because you know, I like that he's putting the challenge on us to think of a better policy, to not run away from race, right, to embed it and to understand biases and how those biases have impacted the way that the world has been run, right? Um, and so that's something that I have been trying to do for myself as well, to like focus on, well, what part of the society am I trying to better? And then asking the question of, well, what's the risk, Right. Like um, when people talk about solar panels and some people say, well, renters can't get solar panels. And I'm like, well, that doesn't mean that solar itself is inequitable. Right. Because solar actually does a great job. Like 
there are different policies that you can use to make solar equitable, like we have community solar projects, right? You can actually um, have not not have it so that the homeowner has to buy the solar, right? But if we do these smart utility investments that are buying the solar and putting the solar on the roof, and then the utility can do that, then that actually helps renters, you know, access solar technologies, right? Um, and so that's one thing that I really enjoyed about the How to Be an Anti-Racist book, that it is challenging not to just say, well, that technology is inequitable. But no, like the policy of the deployment of the technology, is that inequitable? And then how do we fix that, right? Because technologies in and of themselves are not inherently unequal. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really fascinating connection uh, to the energy space. Well, Destiny, it would be great to talk to you even more about these conversations, and hopefully we'll have the chance to do that in the future. But uh, we're going to have to close it out for today. So just want to say one more time, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio and sharing your work with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.